So Acts 25, uh, we're going to be starting our study in, in verse 13. But uh, I, I was in Alaska a couple weeks ago and uh, just on vacation. So um, it turns out I, I didn't actually have great cell service out there. So uh, on some of my tr- day trips or excursions through the mountains, I found myself driving and nobody knew where I was. Uh, nobody had any... Um, information. So if I, you know, drove over a cliff and died, nobody, uh, who knows how long it would have taken for them to find me. Um, but I was going down this one windy road that looked pretty cool and, uh, not knowing where it would lead to. And it was a pretty tight road, uh, through the mountains and it just kept going and going and going. And again, those things start to, uh, go through your mind like, Oh geez, I I have no clue where this is going. Uh, I have no clue where to turn off or where I could turn around. Uh, I don't know what my options are. Like, do I just put it in reverse for the next 30 minutes to backtrack? Um, how do I turn this thing around? Um, and that, that was an accidental situation, you know, that, that you get yourself into. But um, sometimes we find ourselves willfully overcommitting to decisions where we just keep digging in and in and in. And then at some point, you kind of pull your head out of the sand and, and ask yourself, how do I how do I get off this road? How do I backtrack? How do I turn around? What are my options here? And if you recall last week, Jared introduced this concept, uh, this modern term of a bad game, which is basically a game where the rules are designed in such a way or or set in such a way that um, the end result is nobody wins. This game isn't set up for human flourishing. Humans were not designed to operate in these bad game scenarios. And we gave a couple examples of um, the popularity game or the comparison game where you're just comparing yourself to other people. And if that consumes your life, that's a bad game. Uh, The people around you aren't going to be fulfilled. Uh, You're not going to be fulfilled. Um, A lot of damage along the way. Uh, The the materialism game of seeking uh, comfort in, in material objects or money, that's a bad game. That those rules, if you live by those rules, it's not setting you up for flourishing at all. And what we find in, uh, as we continue in Acts 25 is um, we see some people involved in these, these bad game scenarios, and we see how God sets the stage uh, to give them an off-ramp, to give them an out, to give them an option, an alternative to that life. And this is really, uh, th- this should really be kind of a, a two-part because we're not going to be able to cover all of that today, but we are going to set the stage and see how God orchestrates uh, events and people to come alongside uh, these characters and give them an out, give them an off-ramp. So um, <clears throat> Acts 25, starting in, in uh, verse 13, let's go ahead and read. It says, Uh, Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came out, uh, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I uh, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge 
in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. We're going to stop right there. Um, we're going to introduce these new characters, Agrippa and Bernice, in just a second here. But first, let's just recap uh, what's been going on so far. So if you remember over the past few weeks, we read about how Paul uh, went to the temple to, in Jerusalem to worship. And these Jews uh, from, uh, from Asia, so from out of town, they, they saw him, they recognized him, uh, they, they recognized that he um, preached uh, the name of Christ, who had died and resurrected, uh, and that he preached him as Savior. And they started throwing all of these false accusations against Paul. There's this uh, chaos and, and turmoil ensue, this, this essentially a riot uh, at the temple. And Paul gets arrested, though no formal charges are brought, up, brought against him. So the Romans, uh, they, they arrest Paul as they're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, Paul remained under arrest for two years under the governor, Felix. And now uh, leadership has changed hands. Uh, Felix was actually released from his position for doing such a poor job. Um, and so now we have uh, the governor, Festus, kind of inheriting this, this issue, and he doesn't know how to navigate it, um, and he, he's not sure how to, how to handle this situation. So... Again, we'll circle, we'll circle back to King Agrippa and his part in this story. But first, let's talk about the problem that Festus is dealing with as the new governor and as he's trying to familiarize himself with Paul's case. So Festus's problem, uh, number one, it's not his fault. It was an, an inherited problem. And he actually uh, indicates this and maybe kind of points fingers a little bit when he, when he says, there was a man left prisoner by Felix i.e. he had two years to figure this out and he didn't do anything about it. So it's kind of like the, the morning shift showing up after night shift and, uh, you know, the shop's in total disarray. And it's like, what, were you, what have you been doing? Like, this was, you should have had this cleaned up by now. You should have had this figured out. But now we got to deal with it. It's kind of that situation. Uh, Felix should have um, either found legitimate charges, if there were any, or released Paul. But he didn't do that. So this is a, a problem that Festus has in, just inherited. But it's also an unfamiliar problem. Both the accusations and the defense that Paul gives are unfamiliar to Festus. And he mentions this, um, it, it, the way he phrases it, he says, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. And creating this, this language and this understanding that this is kind of a, to me, it, to me at least, as the new governor, this is um, kind of a distant issue that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, this is about their religion, their customs, um, and, and I'm not quite tracking with everything that's going on, is probably his understanding. But then Paul's defense is, is also interesting. Um, he, he starts talking about this Jesus who died and was resurrected, and that's also something that, um, that Festus is kind of at a loss of how to handle. If the accusations weren't strange enough, uh, Paul's defense uh, makes it more confusing for him. So, 
it's, a, it's an inherited problem. It's an unfamiliar problem. But now it's also an urgent problem. So after two years, uh, last week we read that, um, that Paul, now he, he's, he's, he's out of the bad game, quote, scenario. He's not going to play by those rules anymore. And he says, I, I know I'm not going to get a fair trial continuing to do this. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to the higher authority. I, I want my case to go before Caesar. Uh, and not before these Jews who have accused me and have uh, been plotting to murder me. So this is now an urgent problem now that he's appealed to Caesar, and it would look terrible on Festus's uh, reputation as a new governor if he uh, immediately encounters this situation he can't handle and sends this prisoner up the chain uh, without any formal charges. So he, he wants to get this taken care of. And he, see, he says that in verse 17, that he made no delay to hear this case. So it's an inherited problem, an unfamiliar problem, an urgent problem, but it's still his responsibility. He still needs to take care of it. And out of, uh, uh, as all of this is unfolding and, and somewhat spiraling out of control, uh, we meet King Agrippa and Bernice, and, and Festus is thrilled to see King Agrippa. This is King Herod Agrippa II, who shows up. Now, this uh, King Herod Agrippa II, uh, he had limited uh, uh, sovereignty or authority, control over the region, um, but he did have some uh, authority over Jerusalem and the temple and uh, selecting the high priest, and he was incredibly familiar and studied in Jewish scripture and customs. So while, uh, while Festus knew very little, uh, Agrippa was the expert. So, of course, as, as he comes to town, comes to Caesarea, uh, Festus sees this, and he's probably thrilled, thinking he can loop him in on, on what's happening, and uh, Agrippa can help him sort this out and see things that he can't see, and that he'll solve his problem. This uh, urgent, unfamiliar problem, he thinks that King Agrippa is going to be the solution to this problem. Uh, at least, he, he hopes that he will be. Um, now, interesting thing about uh, what we know about Bernice, um, <clears throat> there's some historical accounts, extra-biblical accounts. We don't know for sure from what I've read. Um, I, I don't know with 100% certainty um, exactly the relationship, but we know that, he, uh, that, that Bernice was Agrippa's sister, but there's also speculation that they were married and that there was a romantic relationship involved. So really interesting uh, family dynamics there. Um, but they both, uh, they both show up together, and <clears throat> we think that we understand Festus's problem, right? It's this legal case that he's trying to resolve. That's the apparent problem that we're dealing with in this, in this chapter. But as we read this, we uncover a, a deeper, much more severe problem than the one Festus thinks uh, is the, is the real problem. You see, the, the real problem is, is found in three words <coughs> that Festus uses as he's explaining this case to King Agrippa. He says, uh, he's, he's talking about this dispute that Paul had with the, the Jews, and he says that it's around a certain Jesus. Those are the three words that indicate uh, a, an issue. Those are a, a, a red flag. A certain Jesus. See, that phrase, a certain Jesus, it indicates that Jesus was somebody in particular, but not somebody who was particu uh, particularly special. 
A certain Jesus shows an, an unfamiliarity with who Jesus really was, what he came to do, his, uh, his, his, his identity. So a, a certain Jesus, as we're going to use it today, and as Festus understood it, it's a statement of, uh, of ignorance, really. Because to Festus, this, uh, this Jesus, a certain Jesus, it wasn't a Jesus that he understood. And a, a certain Jesus wasn't a Jesus that he needed. A certain Jesus wasn't a Jesus that he knew. A certain Jesus wasn't a Jesus that was powerful, who could uh, conquer death. A certain Jesus wasn't a, a Jesus who loved him or knew him. And a, a certain Jesus certainly wasn't a, a Jesus worthy of worship. So while he has this issue in his job that he's trying to resolve, his soul is in turmoil and, and he doesn't have a clue uh, who Jesus is or that Jesus is his only hope for salvation. There's an eternal issue going on with Festus right now. This is an issue that we still see today. A certain Jesus. I guarantee we all know it. We all have seen it. And I know from uh, uh, personal experience, I mean, you, you walk around Spokane in the park, downtown, coffee shops. It doesn't matter where you go and you start talking with somebody. And when the conversation turns to God, I can tell you, you'll probably be hard-pressed to find people who have never heard the name of Jesus before. But so often we find they only know a certain Jesus. They have a, a very limited understanding of the true identity of Christ. And if you take a, a class on, on missions or you have any interest in uh, uh, studying how uh, church leaders uh, and, and, and missionaries talk about um, unsaved people groups and, and, and how they uh, make that breakdown and, and where they draw the lines and the distinctions between this country and that country and if they've been reached and how, what percentage has access to the gospel here, you'll find that um, America is considered a reached people group, meaning we have access to the gospel. But I, would, uh, I, I think we need to understand, though, that just because we have access to the gospel doesn't mean that everybody really understands who Jesus is. We have access to the gospel, but we still have churches all across the country who are preaching a certain Jesus. There are churches who preach that uh, there is a, a Jesus who saves uh, as long as you continue to do these certain works or are still good enough. There are churches, unfortunately, that preach a certain Jesus. A Jesus uh, who can save, but he's one among many ways to salvation. And as long as your intentions are good and your heart is good and you love other people, that's all that really matters. So they preach a, a certain Jesus and a certain gospel that is not the true Jesus and the true gospel. And so, again, you, you walk around or talk to people you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. Yeah, I know about Jesus, the Bible, and uh, Jesus was a great moral teacher. I think we should probably pay attention to some of the things he was telling us. It's probably a good idea. That's a certain Jesus. Or uh, uh, 
a Jesus who w- was just a man, who has no power to, to save you. That's a certain Jesus. And I remember even talking to a, a close friend that I grew up with. And, you know, sometimes as believers, we just have this under, or we think that people, people know what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Even if they went to church, we, we, we make that assumption. And this friend of mine who had grown up uh, with me going to church, but had apparently been walking away from God for many years, I, I was talking to him one time and I asked him, you know, what, what happened? What, what's stopping you right now from turning back to God? And he said, Stephen, you don't know the things that have happened or the things that I've done. And it was really sad because um, it was a, a lack of understanding of the power of Jesus and the power of the cross and the power of the grace that he offers. In his mind, there were these limitations that uh, God couldn't overcome what he had done. I think that was a little bit of that thinking of uh, a certain Jesus, not an accurate portrayal of how much God loved him and wanted to forgive him and wanted to draw him back and how the price had already been paid and how he had already proved that what he did on the cross was enough to cover that sin and that that's already been accounted for and that God, God knew that sin and, and he still has open arms to draw him back in. And the interesting thing is uh, with this certain Jesus is, um, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of doing this so many times where you pull up at a red light next to uh, a woman in a nice shiny car and then on the street corner is somebody who is apparently down on their luck um, and in, you know, has some physical needs, maybe homeless, maybe living under a, a, a bridge, whatever it may be. And I, 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 my eyes go straight to that person on the corner and I say, oh, that poor person, they just need Jesus. Which is true, they do. But how many times do I completely ignore the other people that seem to blend in and don't realize their need for Jesus or the, the, the fact that so many people um, that might tell you they, they know of Jesus, they only know a certain Jesus. And I, I just pray that my eyes would be open to seeing that, that um, blended in all around us amongst family and friends are so many people who only know a certain Jesus, a distant Jesus. So let's continue, um, let's continue reading. So in verse 23, uh, back up, verse 22. So Festus lays out this, this case and brings Agrippa uh, up to speed. And it says, verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, 
so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa is incredibly interested in this case. Um, it's right up his alley, uh, dealing with Jewish uh, religion, Jewish uh, culture, Jewish scripture. But it's also a contemporary issue with this, this new uh, character, Jesus, who's entered the scene in his mind. So he's, he's interested, and this is uh, almost like entertainment for him. So the next day they organize this hearing, and this isn't a trial. Uh, this is really just, they want to hear Paul out, and Agrippa and Festus are really hoping that as Paul speaks uh, and gives his defense, that something will arise, and uh, Agrippa might be able to identify something in particular that would uh, cause him to be guilty of a, of a crime under Roman law. So they, uh, they, they organize this hearing. And a bunch of people are in attendance. Festus shows up, and his goal is to um, find some charges against Paul. That's his motive for being there. Now, Agrippa shows up, and it says that he shows up with great pomp, uh, or great show, uh, a great display. So he's uh, concerned with his image. He's probably rolling in with uh, some jewelry or fine, fine gowns. He, he wants to make a, a scene, and he wants all eyes on him. He's kind of playing that popularity game that, that Jared was talking about last week. And to him, again, this is entertaining and interesting, somewhat of a show. And, um, and he shows up seemingly just with... with, with uh, it just seems very vain, lots of vanity showing up with such a display. And then we have some, uh, some military um, uh, leaders there who are probably just there stationed for work because that's part of their job is to be present and maintain order during these, uh, these hearings and these events. But then you also have city leaders present who are also curious and interested in what's going on. And um, so th there's all these different people and different motives and... Uh, it's really interesting. You, you, you kind of want to ask, like, who's calling the shots here? Who's really in charge here? Like, what's going, what's going on? Um, this has been, you know, continuing for a, a handful of years now. Nobody's figured out what crime Paul has committed. And who's in charge? Because Festus doesn't seem to know or understand what's going on. Agrippa's new on the scene, and uh, so he's just hearing it out, but he doesn't even have ultimate authority to, to make a decision during this hearing. The Jews who made these accusations, well, well actually, the, the Jews who made the accusations against Paul initially, they're actually, they haven't been present. Those were Jews from, uh, from Asia, from a different region, and now it's the Jews in Jerusalem who are trying to ambush and kill Paul and, and plotting to kill him. So they're, they're not even the original accusers. But they're trying to have Paul killed. And he's just been sitting there in custody for two years. So they're still fuming. They're not getting what they want either. And Paul certainly doesn't have any uh, authority to just decide to walk free. So you kind of wonder, who's really in charge here? Because it just seems like this jumbled mess. It's this big uh, frustrating event. And nobody seems to know what's going on. It seems chaotic. But I can tell you that this is a, a very specific event that God is setting the stage for 
to create that off-ramp that we were talking about. We saw, we, we talked about Festus only knowing a certain Jesus and having a deeper need for Christ. And we're not going to actually read Paul's defense that he gives today. Um, that'll be saved for next week. But in the, in the chapter that follows, Paul's going to give his defense. And spoiler alert, what he does is, um, I, I imagine this almost like accidentally showing up to a Billy Graham crusade. Because <laughs> everybody from the city, they show up to this hearing. And what does Paul do? He doesn't just maintain his innocence. He gives them the gospel. He preaches Jesus Christ as Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all mankind. And it's so apparent that King Agrippa, resp- he's going to respond. And he's going to say, Paul, would you persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul is going to say, not just you, but I wish that everybody here would be just as I am, except for these chains. So Paul knows that this is an opportunity, not just to maintain his innocence, not just to try to get out of jail, but he knows that this is an opportunity to to preach the risen Christ who has the power to transform lives. And he looks at his captors in the face and he says, this is for you. And this is the stage that God has been setting and planning and meticulously crafting. For how long? Well, for a long time. About 30 years prior to this in Acts chapter 9, I don't know if you remember that far back in our study, but uh, right when Paul was converted, God actually spoke to a man named Ananias uh, regarding Paul, and he said that Paul would carry his name before Gentiles and the children of Israel and kings. And here Paul is, in the midst of all this chaos, and this isn't something that Paul has orchestrated, this has been something that he's been roped into and drugged through, and here he is with an opportunity to stand before a king and preach the name of Christ. See, this wasn't an accident. This was not a coincidence. God has been setting the stage for this very moment and for this event. Because God cares about Festus. God cares about King Agrippa. He cares about everybody in attendance there. And God is using Paul to to preach the the gospel and give these people an off-ramp from the lives that they've been living. To give these people an out from their lives of sin and selfishness and despair and destruction of of just living their lives not knowing Christ, not knowing the salvation that he offers. So what we see here is that God is strategically using Paul's imprisonment to preach the gospel to influential, influential citizens and government officials. And everybody thinks they're there for different reasons, but God knows the ultimate reason and the and the purpose for this hearing. What stage is God setting? in your life right now for you? What, what people is he bringing along in your lives and events is he coordinating to give you a platform to preach the gospel to those around you? Put another way, um, who's in your life right now who maybe, uh, maybe we've just taken for granted that they, they understand the gospel and that there's, there's, there's nothing more to say to them, but truly, they, they, they only know a certain Jesus. Because I know, um, for me, it's easy to look around and see people who 
only know a certain Jesus and assume they've heard the message of the gospel. They get it. They've, they've just made a choice. But if they don't truly understand, if they don't really know uh, the power of Christ to change their lives, then there's still work to be done. And there's still a story to tell. And God calls me to share my story of his faithfulness in my life to that person. And hopefully correct that understanding of a, an unfamiliar and a distant, quote, certain Jesus. Is God putting people in your life that kind of fit that category? That he's calling you to share your story and your testimony with? I bet there are people, and I bet that if we pray about it and we, we think about it, we'll see that, that God has brought them into your life, uh, not in an accident or chaos or just this, this random occurrence, but he's been setting the stage for that person. And people have been praying for that person. And Jesus wants that person to know him. And he's put you in their life so that at a moment like this, when maybe they have other problems that they're trying to solve in their life, or they're just showing up uh, for, for some other reason, uh, I, I pray that God would give us all just the heart and the understanding that, you know, these people might think that, they're, they're, uh, that our paths have crossed for all these different random reasons, but ultimately, God is setting the stage for me to share uh, my faith with that person. So I, I, I want to encourage us all just to think that way, that um, there are probably multitudes of people in our lives who only know a certain Jesus. But that God could be placing us in their life um, to change their life, to give them an opportunity to hear that there is an off-ramp from the life that they're living and you know, uh, Jake, you can come, come back on up as we close with the song, but um, maybe you're, you're here this morning and you're thinking, that's been me. Uh, I'm, like, I'm like the governor in this, this story. I've only really known a certain Jesus. He, I, I've never given him the room to, to change my life. I've never given him uh, any of my devotion or worship. I've never turned to him for uh, hope or fulfillment. I've been doing those things on my own. Can I just encourage you to think differently, maybe, than you have been, and encourage you to think that God has been setting a stage for you to hear the, the true Jesus, the Jesus with power behind his name, the Jesus who conquered sin and death, and he did that for you. And can I just encourage you uh, to just be open to that idea that, hey, you know what? Th there have been people who have been praying for you. We pray for this church, uh, our leadership team. There are so many people praying over this congregation every week and the people that come in through these doors. And if you're here this morning, uh, we've been praying for you and we've been praying for God to speak to your heart. And would you, would you just be open to that? That, hey, maybe um, this message of Jesus, this certain Jesus that you've been hearing about, 
maybe it's time to give him some notice, give him some thought, give him an opportunity uh, and, and, and pay some attention to him. Because he's been setting a stage for you to receive the gospel. And that's his desire for your heart is to receive him as Lord and Savior. And um, he doesn't want to be a, a, a distant, certain Jesus. He wants to be a Jesus that, uh, that you know loves you and died for you. And would you, would you just give that some thought this morning? Church, I pray that um, as we go about the rest of our day, the rest of our week, that we would just open our, our hearts to um, how God wants to use us to reach those around us. And how it can be so easy to go, uh, go through the motions and just take it for granted the hope that we have as believers. Would you just join me in prayer this morning?